capture the adrenaline that's shooting off in the electricity, he captures it right there on paper. Ladies and gentlemen, Al Hirschfeld. Well, I've drawn ever since I could hold a pencil. Actually, all kids draw. I just never stopped. You do it. Welcome to the Hirschfeld Century Podcast. I'm David Leopold, the creative director of the Al Hirschfeld Foundation. And I'm Catherine Eastman. I'm the archives manager. This is our second episode. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about who Hirschfeld is. We're going to talk about his art and who he is as a person. Right. To cover uh, kind of the basics if you don't know anything about Al Hirschfeld. There are people out there who don't know anything about Hirschfeld, and we want to get them up to speed. Right, right. So you can listen to the other episodes, and it kind of all makes sense. <laughs> exactly. We want, it, we want it to make sense. We want all the lines to connect. Right. Uh, so Hirschfeld's birthday is actually next week. June so 21st, let's, let's for those of there. you keeping your calendar at home. Let's start there. So he was born on June 21st, 1903 in St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, at a very young age, contracted a sickness for drawing, as he called it. And a local artist befriended him, took him around, and then convinced his family to take him to New York, to really move the whole family, go to New York, because he knew that there were not many prospects for a professional artist in uh, St. Louis. Right. So in 1914, the family moved to New York and became New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. uh, he would be a staunch New Yorker for the rest of his life. Uh, he once in New York, he took classes at the National Academy of Design, where he learned the two things he said that you can learn in art school, which are anatomy and perspective, and which he would then spend the rest of his life sort of uh, uh, breaking those rules. Right, right. Uh, and uh, but it was uh, in high school. He was in a he was in a vocational school. He had to serve an apprenticeship, and through a friend, he learned about uh, uh, being a gopher at Goldwyn Pictures. He had he wanted to be a sculptor. He thought uh, uh, sculpture was really his true calling. And uh, but when he saw the work of uh, when he saw the atmosphere of uh, uh, a, a architectural sculptural firm down in Union Square, he realized that that would be a dreary life, and he wouldn't like it. Um, he ran into a classmate uh, on Fifth Avenue, uh, and this classmate told him that he had gotten a job uh, working as a gopher at Goldwyn Pictures, which was located right across the street from the 42nd Street Library in New York. And uh, although he told Hirschfeld there were no other jobs there, Hirschfeld went there because it was the only place that he knew. Um, they hired him uh, as well uh, as a gopher. And he was hired by Howard Dietz, who would become a great songwriter and director and producer. Uh, and uh, But while there, in between running errands, he would make little sketches of uh, the studio stars and he would throw them in the waste paper basket when he was done. One night, Dietz uh, fished one out of the waste paper basket, uh, published it and uh Hirschfeld was paid as an artist he was thrilled uh, what do, how much did he get paid as a gopher was it like four dollars a week it was four dollars a week so did he actually get paid for that drawing that ran in the paper i think he did get paid because oh, it cool. was it, it was how you know, old was he at this time he was 17 years old Jeez. and uh um he, that summer, he went uh, with his family back to St. Louis uh, to see family. And when he got back, Dietz, who had told him he wouldn't hire anybody else, had hired somebody else. And uh, when Al asked him about it, said he would. Uh, Dietz said he would fire the guy. And uh, Hirschfeld, though, 
didn't want to see another guy lose his job. And I think he wanted to explore being an artist. He got paid better. And sure enough, he literally went down the street and got hired uh, based on a small portfolio of drawings that he'd gotten published already. Um, got a job at Universal Pictures. Their now, publicity these are department. Just, these are just regular... What, are, what does he call them? Hand or eyes, ears, throat, nose portraits? Uh, eye, ear, nose, and throat portraits. Yeah. The representational drawings. They're straight not drawing. caricatures at all. Yeah. Like uh, classically drawn drawings. Exactly. Um, film was the new media of its day. Right. The internet of its day. But it was still publicized the same way uh, through uh, print media. And so Hirschfeld was doing these drawings uh, at Universal where he now was getting paid $75 a week. It was a huge wow. step up. Uh, for him and uh, but he started to freelance with other studios he wasn't too crazy about the art director at Universal um, one of the places that he freelanced was uh, for Selznick Pictures this was uh, Louis J. Selznick David Selznick's father um, and he got to know David Selznick well who was also about 18 at the time um, and David Selznick convinced his father to hire Al Hirschfeld the 18 year old Al Hirschfeld as a uh, art director for the studio which was not the biggest studio but had the largest advertising budget they had the right. biggest uh, billboards in Times Square right and they're the one one of my favorite Hirschfeld pieces I think of all time is the cover of the Selznick what is it called distributing corporation oh yeah um, it's a pamphlet of their upcoming films and I you said I think it was the largest advertising by yeah, it was a it was a twelve ever. page insert in the Saturday Evening Post. It, uh, up in, uh, to that point, it was the largest uh, ad buy that anybody had ever made, which is totally typical of what Selznick would do. Mm. I mean, he it, it sounds could, like they were all talk. They were. They had a very good game going right, on. Right. Talk. Um, and uh, Hirschfeld did this. It's I a crazy psychedelic. Drawing. You uh, can't even describe it. Uh, definitely, we'll put that in the show notes. When it's I found crazy. it in Hirschfeld's studio. Uh, I brought it over to him, and he looked at it for a while. His first question was always, where did you find that? Uh, but he looked at it for a while, and then he turned to me and says, how did I do this? <laughs> you know, which I had no idea. It really is. When you look at it, though, you're, you really are like, how did he do this? Yeah. It's it, so... It would not have been out of place in San Francisco in the late 1960s. Right. It's, it's that totally kind of wild. wild. And inside were all these straight drawings and right. uh, paintings that Hirschfeld did. Uh, it was a valiant effort, but unfortunately the studio went under. And Hirschfeld was left uh, uh, with bills for uh, to his suppliers and to his fellow artists. And uh, he was pretty, he was pretty depressed. I'll be honest with mm. you. And he goes to a party at Carl Van Vechten's. Uh, he meets a, a young man who had just come from Mexico, nineteen years old. Hirschfeld's all of twenty at this point. Uh, and uh, uh, the young man, his name is Miguel Covarrubias, who would become the great characterist of the nineteen twenties. Uh, but at this point, he had literally just gone into town. They both needed a studio to work in. They both liked each other just from this initial meeting. And uh, they decided to get a studio together. And for the next 18 months, uh, Hirschfeld did drawings for Warner Brothers Pictures uh, to pay off all of his bills. But what is more important is while he was sharing the studio with Covarrubias, in Hirschfeld's own words, a lot of what 
Covarrubias was about rolled off onto Hirschfeld. And this idea of caricature was this graphic way of looking at the world was something that really uh, had an impact on Hirschfeld. And while he continued to do straight drawings, he published his first caricature in April 1925 in the New York world for uh, a film, for Warner Brothers Films, right. which sort of upends the whole, what, what most people think about Hirschfeld right. because we think of him in the New York Times and theater. Right. But it was of Sidney Chaplin, who is Charlie Chaplin's half-brother. Correct. Which I always think is kind of interesting. Because Chaplin a, would play a role in right, his life as well. Much later on, yeah. But uh, anyway. Well, those first crude caricatures are not anything that Hirschfeld was particularly proud of later in life. But you can see the sort of nascent beginning of his style. And he continues on this. Uh, and uh, he starts working for... He goes off to Paris. Um, but even in Paris, he can't get... He's still thinking about caricature. Right. He's doing traditional painting, but his sketchbooks are full of caricatures. Uh, and in 1928, he gets a, a telegram from the New York Times uh, asking for a drawing. And uh, Hirschfeld is convinced it's a joke because it's signed Zolito, which sounds like a total prank made up by one of his friends because they were all pranksters. And once Hirschfeld finds it's on the level, he does this drawing in January 1928 of, uh, of Harry Lauder, a uh, Scottish vaudevillian, making one of his regular farewell tours. Uh, and that's another drawing that Hirschfeld would almost completely disowned. Uh, right. When he put together a collection of his work in 1960, it called American Theater is Seen by Hirschfeld, and he broke it down by decades. Of course, you have to feature the first drawing he did for the New York Times because at that point he had been working for the paper for uh, more than 30 years. Um, he did not use his original drawing. He used a drawing that he had done two years later. Um, that was much better. Uh, yeah. I will say that. I must know. admit the first one was not great. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you, you know, you gotta play to win, yeah. and uh, and and Hirschfeld was the first person who would look at, when he looked at his 1920s drawings. He wondered how any editor w would buy them uh, because he thought they were so. But they're uh, so good. They are they're, from an artistic point of view. They're just incredible. They're much more in, interested in design. They right. look very much from the 20s. They're, right, they're right. Very deco yeah. very inspired. Cubist. A lot of them. Yeah. 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 Um, he's learning because he hadn't fully committed to what he was doing. He was a painter who did these drawings as a way, in his words, to pay the room rent. Right. Um, that all changed in 1931. He's working at this point for six different movie studios, three different New York newspapers. He's doing uh, print advertising. I mean, he has what he learns very early on in life, that talent is a wonderful thing, but that's something that a lot of people have. It's discipline. And he had a very good work ethic. He worked every day. Right. And he worked hard at it, and uh, uh, and 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 that would be a, a hallmark of his whole life. Did he work on the weekends? Uh, he did work on the weekends. It. Sunday, he didn't really work on. Okay. That's uh, fair. When he was a young man, he used to go out to Coney Island with Bard Sorensen. Oh, that's fine. And they would ride the roller coaster and do things like oh that. It was totally crazy stuff. I cannot stuff. imagine. That. Um, <laughs> he uh, because he loved fun. He was he loved fun. He loved characters. He loved mm -hmm. he he loved life. He was a life lover, and he lived completely in the present. Completely in the present. So in 1931, the depression is raging, and he's kind of depressed by the depression. So he decides to, he had, he had read Mutiny on the Bounty and decides to go to Tahiti to paint, uh, only to discover when he gets there that everybody else had read Mutiny on the Bounty or had known about Gauguin, and they were all trying to recreate that experience. The natives were playing Irving Berlin songs on ukuleles. Uh, he 
he thought the whole thing seemed imported from central casting. And he wrote to Covarrubias, who had had the same idea, but had gone off to the island of Bali. He wrote these misanthropic letter, letters, as he said, about how horrible Tahiti was. And Covarrubias wrote back that he had found paradise on Earth and that he loved Bali and uh, that he loved it so much that he wanted to get the uh, support to actually write what is still considered a definitive book on, on Bali. Um, so before he leaves Bali, he says to Hirschfeld, if you can get here, I will, I'll leave you all my dishes and my house and my bicycle. And Hirschfeld said, I'm on my way. And, and when he gets there, is, as he described it, when he stepped into the village of Denpasar on the island of Bali, he said that his life changed, that the sun was so bright it bleached out all the color, and all he saw were black and white line drawings walking around. And it was then that he really got interested in image and pure line. And in, over his 10 months in Bali, he, it, it only deepened. You know, he, the, he saw shadow puppets for the first time. Right. And was fascinated <clears throat> how these wonderfully simple shadows could articulate so much character and emotion. And it was really just line, right. you know, uh, light and shadow. Bali is a great story, and we're definitely going to do an episode just on Bali. Oh, uh, there's it's an incredible story. Yeah, Bali. it's a great story. So to cut it short, to kind of give you a special teaser for that episode, Hirschfeld ends up getting back to the United States by Charlie Chaplin. Yes. Via Her Charlie Chaplin, which we'll save for that because that's a great story. Yes. Uh, so via Charlie Chaplin, Hirschfeld gets back to New York. And there, the bright sunlight of Bali is replaced by the bright spotlight on Broadway. And soon after he comes home, he does this incredible drawing of Fanny Bryce and George Jessel on this in the stage show between films at the Paramount Theater in Brooklyn. And he poses them in literally in a bright spotlight. Yeah. And their shadows are something right out of a shadow puppet play. Yeah, it's incredible. It's and so obvious. Uh, yeah. What has happened? I know? mean, it is if, yeah. uh, uh, very few times in uh, art history do you get this really sort of linear connection, but this drawing really the is Ros it. The Rosetta Stone of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> of Hirschfeld. Exactly. So now he gives up painting. Never, never paints. Uh, Denver does any studio painting for the rest of his life. Right. And uh, he's really interested in image and pure line. He's really discovering that what he's interested in is the character mm. uh, of the performer. And uh, he'd been working for MGM since 1927, doing incredible posters for Law and Hardy and Buster Keaton and right. a whole slew of films. Um and in 1935, the uh, uh, MGM signs, or 1934, MGM signs uh, a comedy uh, group that had been traveling in vaudeville for about 25 years. <laughs> a mere 25-year run in vaudeville. <laughs> yeah. They were an overnight sensation that took 25 years to happen. And uh, so they, uh, their names were the- This is the Marks- Oh, okay. <laughs> You I thought you were going to keep going without saying it was no, the Marx Brothers. the Marx Brothers. <laughs> so I was like, David, slow down. It's the Marx Brothers. Yes, it, it, is, it is the Marx Brothers. Uh, it's their first film at MGM, which is Night at the Opera. And Not my favorite Marx Brothers film. It's debatable. It it's, has good moments. Like, oh, you have the cabin scene. You have oh. the sanity clause. But we are going to do a whole Marx Brothers episode oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. with the Marx Brothers expert, it's gonna be Robert insane. Bader. You're going to learn more about the Marx Brothers than you ever wanted to know. Yeah, it's incredible. But he's great. Robert's great, and yeah. uh, Marx Brothers' story is truly incredible. Yeah. Um, and what makes it even more incredible is that Hirschfeld, uh, when he starts to draw the Marx Brothers, realizes 
that he knew he was getting good, he said, when the people started to look like the drawings rather than the other way around. And literally, the Marx Brothers, uh, in their second film, tried to conform to Hirschfeld's image of 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 the Marx Brothers. Um, right. The costume department tried to give Groucho these two triangles of hair that were so prevalent in all the posters. Hirschfeld did six posters for Night at the Opera and a lot of uh, uh, black and white art and advertising art right. uh, to promote the film. Uh, so he had had many drawings of the Marx Brothers right from the start. And what is remarkable, if you look at the drawings of the Marx Brothers before Hirschfeld, they're all over the place. Uh, You're not really sure which one is which. Right. And a lot of them. There's no real telltale sign of who's who. I mean, besides Groucho, it's hard to right, recognize right. the Any rest of, of the Marx yeah. Brothers. After Hirschfeld, all the drawings look like Hirschfeld drawings. Right. They, he literally becomes, his image of the Marx Brothers becomes our image of the Marx Brothers. Mm -hmm. And that is a really important part of uh, uh, what Hirschfeld was about. He not only recorded so much of our popular culture, but he really helped to define it. That happens, uh, too, with uh, Laurel and Hardy. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. His posters for Laurel and Hardy films really uh, gave us this sense of uh, of who Laurel and Hardy were. Right. And remember, more people saw these posters for the films than saw the films themselves. Right. Uh, so his drawings of them uh, were really terribly important. Um, so... Uh, uh, you know, he's he's still working for three New York newspapers. He's still working for six uh, uh, film studios. He's still doing a lot. He's doing political work for new masses. He's uh, printing lithographs. He's got a sort of side thing on, on these yeah. uh, stone lithographs that which he are, loves. Which are fascinating. And they're you would not know they're Hirschfeld. So they're definitely worth looking at. I mean, Oh, the graphic satire yes. in these are, are really remarkable and they're not so much personality based as they are. They're, they're, they're genre pieces. they right. they capture moments. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, but in 1943, a, uh, editor at the New York times comes to Hirschfeld and says, I open up the paper on Sunday and I don't know which one I'm reading because they all have your drawings in them. Because his drawings were appearing in a number of papers, and the it was Tribune, yeah Brooklyn the Eagle. the Brooklyn Eagle, um, and the drawings were everywhere. Because the, with the movie work, uh, he would do black and white drawings, and these would be published in papers and in magazines all over the country and really all over the world. So uh, um, this uh, editor says, "What can we do to get an exclusive for New York newspapers?" And Hirschfeld says, "Cross my palm with silver, and I'm your man." He liked to work with the Times uh, more than the other paper because even then it was sort of the top of the newspaper uh, heap uh, in New York. There were uh, at that time 12 to 14 uh, daily newspapers in New York. And uh, also they gave him assignments, but they did not tell him what to do. And they also paid him directly. They paid him mm -hmm. for the drawings rather than saying the Herald Tribune when a drawing was published on a show, Hirschfeld would have to collect his payment from the press agent for the show. Uh, so, uh, you know, and Hirschfeld found that completely crazy. Uh, so in 1943, he becomes exclusive for New York newspapers to the New York Times. Uh, a very smart move because all those other newspapers essentially disappear. Dis right. <laughs> That was the right one to pick. Yeah, it was yeah. a very shrewd mood yeah. on, on Hirschfeld. Although he would later claim that every magazine he worked for, he closed. You know, he started doing drawings for the Saturday Evening Post, uh, Collier's, and they would eventually, they were huge magazines, and mm. they would they would fold soon after Hirschfeld started drawing for them. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, Collier seems like it had a long run. Uh, it Maybe had a long run up until Hirschfeld started uh. working for him. <laughs> 
I always like the Collier's drawings. Those are some of my favorite drawings. Oh, yeah. They're, they're just so... so yeah, that's know, uh, so that'll be an episode, too, because... Yeah, that is a good idea. That, that It's a very unusual work uh, of Hirschfeld's, uh, yet also very characteristic of him. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, they're Like so, so many things. It's a paradox. Right. Uh, but he was all over magazines. Uh, basically, any magazine you can think of, he drew... Right, <laughs> uh, big, small, uh, mass seventeen magazine. Oh, he had a, a a two year run where he was in every issue from the very start of Seventeen magazine. That's crazy. Um, it's like Frank Sinatra. Uh, been, there have been any good movies. Oh, yeah. There's a, all jazz figures. Yeah. And later, a uh, series of movie figures. Mm. Um, uh, of course, uh, another thing happens in, in the 1940s. Uh, two years after he goes exclusive uh, to the New York Times, he becomes a father. Uh, he His wife, uh, Dolly Haas, has a little girl. If it had been a little boy, they would have named Mark. Uh, but uh, after Mark Twain, after Mark Twain, her yes. favorite American author. Right. But Al's lucky number was nine, and they decided that if they had a girl, they would name her Nina. Which I think is a very strange thing to name your daughter after. Your lucky number. I, you know, people uh, <laughs> naming Look, your children. I've learned not to question Al Hirschfeld's <laughs> thinking behind things, but it does seem strange. But regardless, it seems completely in character. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's with true. Hirschfeld. That's true. And if anyone were to do it, right. I would put money on her. Shirt. And of course, Nina is uh, it's a literally a classic girl's name. It means no, it's girl. very beautiful. It's a Russian name. Right. It's very nice. Yeah, it fits. It fits. Uh, Eudora Weldy thought it was so great. She took it from Hirschfeld's drawings and put it into a story. Uh, she directly credited Hirschfeld with that. What's that? Uh, uh, I don't remember I don't the story off the top of my head, but we'll put it oh, in the show notes. Okay. I've never uh, heard that. Oh, yes. There's things you've never heard, Catherine. Oh. It's Legion. <laughs> uh, but when uh, his daughter was born, uh, Hirschfeld had just come back from Philadelphia where he was at an out-of-town tryout for a show you've never heard of called Are You With It? A musical comedy that ran a I have heard of that, actually. Only because of your work here <laughs> is the only reason you've heard of it. That's the only reason anybody's heard of right, it. It's right, right. It had a seven-month run on Broadway. Uh, it was a minor hit. And uh, so, If you saw Are You With It, please email us. <laughs> yes, we want to know. We're interested. Uh, but it took place in a circus. And in the background of the drawing, Hirschfeld put up posters that you would see at a circus, like Half Man, Half Woman, and World's Strongest Man. And then he had a baby reading a book, and it said Nina the Wonder Child. It was a gag for his friends, for his family. He was a proud father. He had been doing things like this for years. He had been putting people's faces in drawings. If there was a crowd, uh, he, you know, his neighbor might wake up on Sunday morning and see their face in a crowd. Or, or Brooks Atkinson, the Times yeah. theater critic. I see Brooks Atkinson in a lot of drawings. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no. His accountant might see uh, his picture. <clears throat> uh, one time, very famously, he, uh, he was in London and he did a drawing of the country wife with Ruth. Gordon and on the wall of the set there was he put a portrait up there and uh, there might have been a portrait on the wall on the set it almost certainly was not of Paul Lawrence who was the woman that Hirschfeld was dating at the time but it was a way for Hirschfeld to say to his girlfriend I'm thinking of you you know he sent back the drawing it was published in the paper I'm sure Paula saw it and was very pleased to <laughs> see her picture in That's the paper funny. even if it was in the background when Hirschfeld got back from London the his editor at the time said that the paper was not a place to send messages to your girlfriends. And they encouraged him to stop it. <laughs> uh, and Hirschfeld being Hirschfeld, he did not. 
<laughs> he kept on doing it. And so he, yeah. he put in Nina in this drawing very much the same way that he'd been doing things like this. And he did it for a couple of weeks because, he, you know, he was a proud father. Uh, and then he thought the joke had run its course and he stopped. He, he didn't put it in uh, one week. And the mail he got, he said, was incredible. All of his people said, spend all day Sunday looking for Nina. Where is it? You know, and uh, he realized there was so much mail, it was easier to keep putting Nina's in the drawings than to answer the mail. And uh, another couple of weeks went by, he tried the same thing, even more mail. He said uh, later on that he learned the hard way to make sure he put her name in the drawing before he put his name in the drawing because nobody was looking for his name. Right. And it turned out everybody was looking for uh, her name. Right. I uh, think that's the number one thing people say to us when they, you know, after a talk or something is, oh, I, you know, my whole childhood was spent looking for the Ninas Sunday mornings with my parents, you know. It's and an initiation, the, right, for right. a tremendous number of people into the worlds of uh, uh, Broadway and Hollywood and, you know, New York Right. newspapers <clears throat> you know you felt like you were in on something it was the it was the worst kept secret in the world <laughs> uh, right. uh i know when i was growing up in central pennsylvania uh we get the sunday times and when my parents showed me how to find ninas i looked at those drawings for years looking for ninas until one day i said who are these drawings of? And it changed my life because uh, I pursued that path. I never thought I would end up working with Hirschfeld but at the time, but uh, um, it, it really did change my life. And I think I'm not alone in that regard. Right. A lot no, of people, I think that's the majority. He, I did not have that experience mm -hmm. as a millennial. Uh, I got you know this wonderful job, and I learned a lot about Hirschfeld. I've been learning a lot of uh, 20th century entertainment, theater, movies, music, and uh, I mean it was several months. I was there's you know sometimes there's a number after Hirschfeld's signature, and I would look at the drawings and I would count the figures in them. I would try to figure out you know is it something to do with the date? You know why? Well, this says Hirschfeld six, but there's only two people in the drawing, and I was really trying hard to figure it out. Um, and one day, I, I finally had enough, and I asked you. I said, "What does the number next to his name mean?" And I'll <laughs> never forget your response. You said, "You are the only person in America who doesn't know what that means." <laughs> I'm pretty close. I, I think that was a very so accurate... for all us people out there who don't know what the number means. So in, in, in 1960, a, a uh, reader wrote into the New York Times saying that uh, she loved Hirschfeld's drawing, very insightful, really wonderful work. But uh, her problem with them is that she didn't know how many Ninas they should be looking for. She would find three and her husband said that he would find four. And it would be helpful if they knew how many they were supposed to be looking for. And uh, the publisher of the New York Times sent this note on to Hirschfeld and said, I think it's a good idea. Figure out a way to do that. <laughs> and so Hirschfeld, in May of 1960, started to put a number next to his name uh, to tell you how many to look for. And it eventually evolved that if there was more than one Nina in the drawing, and he might put the Nina in the sleeves of a shirt or in the hair or in uh, a picture in the background. Fringe on a shirt. Something oh, yeah. like that, yeah. Anywhere you could make it hard to find but not too hard to find uh he he would put the drawing he would put he would put nina in the drawings right. and so he would put a number next to his name when there was more than one and uh they came out organically when Hirschfeld was drawing. And, you know, I met Hirschfeld in, uh, uh, in 1990 and started coming to his studio regularly after that. And, uh, I, you know, I didn't ask him 
about Nina. There were so many other things to ask him about. But, right. but one day we're in the studio and he calls me over to the drawing table. He's just finished a drawing because that was one of the really great things about working in Hirschfeld Studios. You saw the drawings as soon as they were done. <laughs> and uh, it was a great drawing. And Hirschfeld looks at me in all seriousness and says, how many Ninas do you see? And I thought it was a gag. I thought he was pulling my leg. And I said, what are you talking about? You know, He's like, I, I found four Ninas, but I'm pretty sure there's five. And if I get the number wrong, the male is going to be incredible. So I spent the next 10 minutes with Al Hirschfeld looking look for, for Ninas. Ninas. I've That's crossed hilarious. that off my bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I kind of have the luxury of being able to look at the drawing and not look for the Ninas. Yes. Because that was not what I looked at the drawings for. Um, well, Jules Pfeiffer thinks it was the worst thing that ever happened to Al. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think it. I, I understand what he's saying, but I also think it kind of uh, expanded the audience exactly to where people who would have never looked at the drawings did look at the drawings. Right, and and, and in many ways, it helped uh, do what every producer hoped a Hirschfeld drawing could do, would make people interested in it. Mm-hmm, right. So people look for his drawings. Uh, when Hirschfeld was drawing uh, Broadway for uh, New York Times, uh, let's say, more everybody knew it was on Broadway. Not because they all went to it. It's because they all look for the Hirschfeld drawing. <laughs> right, they all look for Ninas. Right, and, and whether it was yeah. a, a Broadway show or a film, his drawings had an audience all to themselves right. and it gave people a lot of knowledge even if that's not what they were looking for right it was right. just because of the ninas um so i mean there we're going to do a whole episode on nina because oh, it's definitely. we have to it's right. almost contractually obligated <laughs> it wasn't my employment contract <laughs> uh all right so let's talk a little bit about hirschfeld the man because i always like watching videos or interviews of him he's so sweet and he looks adorable there's a great documentary called the line king yes. the al hirschfeld yes. story nominated for an oscar if you have never seen it you should go mm-hmm. out and see it i think it's on netflix uh it, it's on dvd netflix just do a google search and you'll probably be able to find it you didn't hear it from right. us don't don't tell them i told you that's why <laughs> that's why i'm saying it very quietly. yes <laughs> um, <laughs> It is a great documentary. Um, he talks a lot in it and tells his story. It's great. Um, but yeah, I wanted to talk about the man um, because I think we all have seen the drawings and we, you know, we've covered that story. But who who was he as a person? You know. Well, he was very much like his drawings. You know, uh, at first so seemingly simple and and <laughs> we all get it. And then, of course, the more time you spend with him, the more sophisticated and insightful mm. you you realize he was. He was a very well-read guy. He he had a life of experience that few people could uh, could uh, ever have. Right. He seems to have been in the center of things almost wherever he went. Uh, in New York, we think of him in theater, but he knew everybody. Right. Um, and it wasn't something, he didn't cultivate people. He was not a name dropper. He was a great storyteller, a uh, great rock cantor. Uh, he was fun. Yeah, he it was, seems like he was just a nice guy and everybody gravitated toward him. And Yeah, he had and, a natural and charisma. admired him. Right. right. And, and they admired him because, you know, in some ways he stayed in his lane. You know, mm. he didn't he didn't use his drawings as a way to seduce women or make political statements right. or, or anything comment like on that. a personality or right or, or even the show. Like we've said before, you know, he wasn't commenting on how good the sh- good or bad the show was. Right. So even if it was a terrible movie or play, 
there was still a wonderful drawing to remember it by. Right. The drawings sometimes have lasted much longer <laughs> right. than the Definitely. productions themselves. <laughs> I think that's true for a, a lot of yeah. drawings. <laughs> a lot. But, uh, but also, you know, he was, like I said, he was a life lover. He, and that I think comes through in his drawings. Uh, he was sort of like your, I think another reason why his drawings have always were always so popular was like your best friend going to the theater and sort of reporting back on what he saw mm. you, you, you know everybody instantly took Hirschfeld as a friend because that's what he was when I first met him and uh, we had I hit it off with Al Hirschfeld I was so pleased and <laughs> patting myself on the back until I realized that Al Hirschfeld hit it off with everybody right. you know there are, uh, I can't think of anybody who would have negative things to say about Hirschfeld mm. uh, not because he he was this meek mild character he was not Mm. He had uh, he he didn't mind sharing his opinions. He mm. felt strongly about things, but at the same time, he did not have the bile. He did not have the anger, uh, you know, or the hate. He he really he had this wide-eyed wonder about the world. And when he said something was insane, that was a seal of approval. Right. You know, that was something that he thought was good. He loved characters. He you know the crazier the character. You know, he he could spend his time with the sort of most well-known people, the most accomplished people, but he's just as happy to spend his time with some ne'er-do-well. Joe. Well, I think a, uh, Joe Gould. Joe Gould, you know, classic <laughs> character of the uh, Greenwich Village, a man who claimed to be writing the uh, history of the United States based on overheard conversation. Which I will buy. Yes. I would definitely read that. A lot of people would. Uh, alas, that book's not coming out. Right. Well, that was his thing, though, right? He was getting, Joe Gould was getting funding for that book. Uh, Gould, Is that correct? Yes. Gould yeah. was, well, he supported himself uh, with okay. a, a right. dollar a week from 50 different people. And Hirschfeld was one of those people. And Hirschfeld would often then have him in for dinner. Right. Because he was a character. I thought it was like every Thursday. Every Thursday. Yeah. You could find Joe and Gould. And Tuesdays was Fred Allen then. Yeah, he would okay. have uh, Chinese dinners Chinese with, uh, with Fred Allen. For, with Fred Allen. Which I would definitely, I would 100% do Tuesday dinners oh, with yeah. Fred Allen. To be a fly on the wall. We'll talk about Not, Fred Allen in another episode. Definitely, because yeah. Fred Allen is a, is a topic to itself. Oh, yeah. To himself. Um, but he was this... A person who was interested in all that was going on. He he. When he went to the theater, we're, we're talking about Hirschfeld again. Yeah. Not, not Joe Gould. No, no, exactly. <laughs> we're done uh, with Joe Gould. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, Hirschfeld would go to the theater, and he didn't. You know, if he saw a revival of a Showboat, he didn't say, "Oh, it's not as good as 1946 or right. 1927 or anything like that." That was. I mean. It might as well have been a different language. He he didn't think that way. Right. Which I, I think is so amazing and such a testament to his character because, I mean, I feel like we do that every day. All the time. I mean, with everything, you know. Oh, this this grocery store isn't as good as the one on, you know, 4, 412. Like, yeah. It's just everything. We're always criticizing. And for him to, especially since he has that personal connection to the the actors or the set designers or the directors, you know, he can still appreciate each one. He doesn't say, like we talked about in the Fiddler on the Roof episode, he doesn't say, well, Topol wasn't as good as Zero Mostel or, you know, whatever it was. He was still able to appreciate every performance for what it was. 
Exactly. Which I think is so hard, especially for the performing arts. He didn't get jaded or cynical about right. uh, what he was drawing or what he was seeing. And he was a man who went out virtually every night of his life. Right. He or, had dinner or had parties. People, right. uh, had great yeah, dinner, parties. dinner parties. And, you know, he would invite a, a collection of people. It might be uh, Lillian Gish, William Saroyan, and you know, what we call civilians. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that is a term we will throw around quite often here. Civilians just mean it's a non-celebrity uh, personality. Yeah, not not in show business. Right, right. Uh, People think it's very funny. And it <laughs> is quite funny that we call them civilians. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he didn't. He loved to have conversations, loved to have arguments. Uh, and he would bring together people and sort of let it all take place. And these dinner parties would go into the wee early morning hours. Uh, oh. And Hirschfeld loved that. He loved staying up late. He he often would say he was glad he took up a profession that allowed him to sleep late. Um, the theater but, is the place for that. Yeah, the theater, he thought the theater was exactly the right, <laughs> right place for him to be. So, I mean, so he was going out and he didn't always go to theater. He'd go to music. He'd go to uh, exhibition openings. He, you know, he, he liked jazz music, right? That was his... Well, he liked hot jazz. He was okay. a very big uh, hot jazz record collector. Uh, in the 20s and 30s, he bought tons of 78s, much more than... We, we had the Library of Congress up uh, one time, and they were looking at his record collection, and they were astounded that a, a private individual uh, um, would have so many of these records mm. uh, You know that, that he obviously bought when, he, when they mm. came out. Um, and it's the only thing that he ever cataloged in his life. He was, you know, he was very into his music. Oh right, I've seen that. There is a, a like a binder or something yeah. where he wrote down all the. Exactly. Like he would write Benny Goodman, and then he would write all the Benny Goodman albums. Uh, all the seventy-eight that he had. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, although when he worked, uh, you know, in the years that I knew him, the, the thirteen years that I I knew him, he didn't put on the he didn't put on music. He didn't put on the TV. He. He was completely absorbed by the drawing. Mm. I used to think that if you um, uh, uh, set a bomb off next to Hirschfeld, um, and the smoke would clear, and he'd still be drawing. And I found out on September 11th that it turned out to be mm. true. I mean, he woke up, saw what was happening, watched it for, on the TV for about an hour. Mm. And then he went back up to his studio and, and started to work because there was nothing that he could do about it. Right, right. And there was that drawing that he wanted to see what was going to happen with to him. Yeah. Because he knew that uh, he had, he was very fortunate that he was successful very early on in his career. And instead of resting on his laurels, he kept on pushing it further. And he knew that when he, when he started a drawing, the, the blank whiteboard had uh, no idea that you know, that he was Hirschfeld or that he had won awards or that people greatly admired his Two work. Two Tony Awards. Yeah. He, he, it was a, he was going to have to create a graphic problem that he alone could uh, solve. And if he did it well, it would be solved to his satisfaction. Uh, and if he didn't, he, it, it, sometimes he would start a drawing, might be a great drawing, but he realized he had done something like that before. And so he would put it aside and start a new drawing. Right. Um, in the 1970s, uh, 1976, uh, the Times uh, uh, started a fourth section, uh, the weekend section, and they uh, had a Friday theater column. Oh, I did and, not realize that was in the weekend section. Oh yeah. I well, it, it was, was a, it was a, it was a weekend section that appeared on Friday. Right, right, right. I just thought it was uh, the arts and leisure. Section. Yeah. I, no, no. This okay. is a Friday column. Gotcha. Uh, and 
now, while Hirschfeld sort of owned the top of the fold, front of the arts and leisure section for decades, right. they were now asking him to appear on to appear on an inside page, and a one-column drawing, which uh, is would be three inches wide and about six inches high. Hirschfeld was seventy-three years seventy-three years old at the time. He had, as I said, won many awards. Was generally acknowledged as the great. Uh, Al Hirschfeld, and <laughs> if he had an ego, he would have said, no way, that's beneath me. Um, instead, he took it as a challenge, and for the next 14 years, uh, used it as a laboratory to to refine what he did even more. Right. Um, he wanted... We, we call these the Friday drawings. Yes, that's and what uh, them as. The, the Friday drawings really reveal this sort of very public laboratory where we see Hirschfeld experimenting every week. We not only get a sense of what he's seen, but what he's interested in graphically. And again, he learned to say more with less right. uh, because he knew what the size of these drawings were going to be. And so at a time when most of his peers were sort of either resting on their laurels or in decline, Hirschfeld was taking his work even further. Starting something new. And, and that's really the story of Hirschfeld's whole career, is he never stops sort of uh, investigating or exploring what he could do with, uh, you know, he said one time that he was down to a pencil, pen, and a bottle of ink, and he hoped one day to get rid of the pencil. <laughs> uh, it, he was, he, he wanted it to be as spontaneous and wonderful on the first go, if at all possible. And he produced a tremendous amount of work, not because it came easy. It's because he worked every day at it. Right, for 70 or 82 years. 82 years. Right. That's not how long he lived. He was that 99 was, and a half when yeah, he, he died. It was yeah. an 82-year <clears throat> active career. He was drawing up until the day before he died. Right. I know. So when I when I explain to people like, you know, I say, oh, I work for the Al Hirschfeld Foundation. Who's Hirschfeld? I say Nina's. They still don't get it, which usually they do by them. But I'll always say he worked for the New York Times for 75 years. And I feel like they don't believe me. I feel like, you know, they're saying I'm saying he was, you know, he lived for 75 years and he worked for the New York Times. But no, he really worked for the New York Times for 75 years and worked. Out, you know, including in the New York Times and outside of the New York Times for 82 years. Right. Which is, I mean, he was working when he was 17, as an artist at 17, and he did it until the day before he died at, at 99 and a half. It, it, it's all true. It's almost unbelievable. There's it's, literally it, nobody else like him. There's nobody else who saw more theater in the 20th century, right. you know, uh, all that jazz, if you will. <laughs> oh, no, he was there at the, uh, you know, he he's there almost at the beginning of Hollywood. He's right. there at the beginning of television. Uh, you know, there, all the music fads of his lifetime. Was it He's Ella there. Fitzgerald, the Apollo Theater? Oh, he sees Ella Fitzgerald, the, of course. Her the, first performance or yeah, whatever that at was. At a talent was show there. at uh, the Apollo. He helped Django Reinhardt get his start. Uh, he helped Django get his first recording gig. Which is insane. Uh, he helped Zero Mostel get his first gig, which yeah. we talked about. And, 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 you know, these are not things that he talked about. These are things that I pulled out of him because he was not mm -hmm. a braggart. He was not a guy who lived in the right. past. He was a guy who lived completely in the present. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get to be 99 and a half. And the only difference of you uh, between the 29 and a half person is that his hair was white when he was 99 and a half. <laughs> He was very much that same 
that same guy. Not that he hadn't uh, evolved at all. It's just right. that he still had the same passions. Right. And 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 that's what it was. He was he was as interested in what he was doing as anybody was. And I think that's what makes the drawings interesting. And yeah. it's what made him interesting. Yeah, yeah, because he is. It is a fast. The whole story is fascinating. The art, the person, it's all. It's got everything in it. <laughs> We're going to talk about so many different aspects of uh, Hirschfeld's work and his life yeah. because there's so much to cover. Mm-hmm. There's there's so much to talk about um, because, he, as I said, he wasn't some bit player in this uh, in the drama of popular culture in the 20th century. He was literally at the center of it. Right. Center of it. Center and of theater, movies, TV. Yeah, music, music uh, and, and you know he. Uh, some of his best friends are the great writers of the 20th century. Mm. Um, you know he he is this sort of zealot character on uh, popular culture of the 20th century. Yeah, and we want to tell those stories because oh, they're gonna... good stories. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, great and ones. They, uh, there's something for everyone, also. You know, Guaranteed. you don't like theater? Well, we're going to talk about you know something else uh, that you do. We like. will tell one day the story of uh, Hirschfeld, Lyndon Johnson, and Martin Luther That's King. That's what I was going to say when we were talking about Hirschfeld being in the center of uh, you know everything. I was just going to bring that up in the Oval Office. In the Oval Office, when Martin Luther King calls from the bridge at Selma. Yeah. So uh, we're going to tell that story. Gonna, That's a we'll good cliffhanger to leave you on. <laughs> <laughs> I like to leave you guys with a little cliffhanger teaser for upcoming episodes. We've got it. So as you can see, we've got a lot to talk yeah. about. We're so thankful that you were able to share this yeah. all this with you. This was a great, I feel like this was a really good episode. <laughs> this, was, <laughs> this was really good. If you feel that way, write a review on uh, <laughs> iTunes. That's I a will. great way to, <laughs> that's a great way to let people know about it and uh, right. uh, let, uh, know about this. Uh, podcast. Um, you can also find us online at alhirschfeldfoundation.org where you can look up everything that Hirschfeld ever did by performer, production, uh, publication, yeah. date, genre, genre yeah. theater season, you know, year, uh, uh, any given year in his yeah. career. Uh, the show notes will be posted at alhirschfeldfoundation.org slash podcasts. That's with an S at the end. Um, For supercalifragilistic. <laughs> Is it going to be something new each week? Perhaps. All right, well, I'm going to do it next week then. Uh, uh, Also, we're on Facebook, the Al Hirschfeld Foundation, uh, Instagram and Twitter, at Al Hirschfeld. We post something every day, um, either drawings that were posted on this day. It's amazing. We just talked about the 82-year career. On any, I mean, every single day of the year, there's like... 10 drawings that we can choose from over 80, you know, from what is it, 1921 to uh, yeah, well, 19, yeah, uh, uh, what is the year? Well, uh, really, for publication, is, yeah, for... is really uh, 1925. Okay, well, we have drawings that are earlier. Oh, we do that. have drawings <laughs> earlier, but we don't have specific dates, right? For right, um. I lost my train of thought. But anyway, we post something new every day, and so it's a lot of fun. Um, I think that's it. Uh, okay. We'll see you next week. Look forward to it. Take care.